Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. I'm Jason Dick, deputy editor at CQ Roll Call, and I'm guest hosting this week while Bill is off. This Thursday's roundtable of journalists has a twofold task. Make sense of the news coming out of this week before Christmas and discuss a story they have worked on throughout the year that deserves some extra attention. The COVID-19 pandemic and the back and forth between the White House and Capitol Hill can really dominate the news cycle, but those aren't the only things happening of importance by a long shot. Speaking of the news this week, Senator Joe Manchin started the week off with a bang by going on Fox News Sunday and saying he was a no on Democrats' legislation priority, the Build Back Better program. The fallout continues, but early signs are we could see the Senate revisit the legislation soon. We'll discuss that and more. Meanwhile, with the COVID-19 Omicron variant pressing on through the country and making people's holiday plans a mess, President Joe Biden delivered a White House address on the situation, announcing measures to combat the surge, imploring people to get vaccinated and boosted, and even giving a shout out to someone he doesn't normally praise, Donald Trump. Discussing all that and more on the roundtable are Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th. Hello, Amanda. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Nikki Schwab, senior U.S. political reporter for the Daily Mail. Howdy, Nikki. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Greetings, David. Hello, Jason. Thanks for having me. So let's get down to it. Uh, you know, Sunday, uh, I, you know, I, I feel like sometimes the Sunday news uh, shows can be very uh, repetitive and, and just, you know, a, an opportunity for people to just kind of uh, meander and go through their talking points. Joe Manchin sort of blew that up a little bit uh, by going on Fox News Sunday. Um, David, uh, you know, have you ever seen a, like such a quick uh, reaction from a White House? Uh, we, we had, you know, after Manchin went on Fox News and said no, uh, Jen Psaki sent out sort of a blistering uh, statement, basically saying Manchin lied to the White House in his negotiations. Have you ever seen anything like that, remotely like that, especially people of the, of the same political party? Um, not, not in respect to something that's so important, such a big piece of legislation. And it, it was very surprising because, as you mentioned, the Sunday shows tend to be stayed and they also tend to be you know, kind of staged. I mean, people know what normally people know what uh, these Sunday show guests are going to say. But no one at the White House expected Joe Manchin to come out so forcefully against BBB during his interview on Fox News, of all places, the anti-Biden network. So I think they, they were they were quite taken aback and, and frankly, quite offended. And I think that explains the the reaction they had and uh, that this, even though Saki put out the statement under her name, trust me, it, it came directly from the lips of one Joe Biden. He was pretty angry about what Manchin had done and he wanted to let it be known. Yeah, Nikki, uh, you, you spent a lot of time on the road and in the travel pool uh, with, with the White House and, and covering at the White House complex also. Um, you know, th- this was uh, one of those moments where um we we did, as David mentioned, you know, this was Jen Psaki's statement, but the president signed off on this. It was almost a, a show of of rare uh, 
anger, uh, if you will, from the president, uh, who likes to project his sort of uh, chocolate chip ice cream personality for the most part. Yeah, it was a uh, a yikes moment, especially that line where she, where she's or she or you know Biden Ruasaki is saying like, "Well, tell the diabetics why they had to spend a thousand dollars a month on insulin," and you're like, "Oh, okay, wow, we're going there." Um, and it actually kind of felt like a throwback to like the Trumpian era, where you would see you know Trump just sort of lash out on Twitter all the time, which you know the Biden administration has very carefully tried to get away from and be you know very sort of structured in their statements and how they sort of present things to the public. So it was it was quite something. <laughs> And and Amanda, you are uh, you're you're traveling, uh, visiting some family in in Ohio. You're from the Cincinnati area. Um, I mean, we we uh, we in the Beltway like to obsess about these sort of things. But uh, what what's what's it been like out there? Uh, well, I was actually probably driving through West Virginia about the time that Joe Manchin said that on Fox on Sunday. Um, and you know, I don't think I've, I've been to Arizona to talk to people about build back better. I've talked to people across the country. Basically the bottom line is they are not tracking every single twist and turn voters at this point. They just tell me they want it to be done. They want it to be finished. They want people to quit fighting. They want to get it across the finish line. Um, if you look at polling, people aren't concerned that it's too big or too small. Uh, they just want Congress to do something. So, I think if it doesn't get done, they'll probably start to pay a lot more attention to why. And and David, is this is this some of your understanding of this too? Is that the the American people, while they you know we see polling that the, the aspects of the Build Back Better plan are popular, but also that they just don't like really seem to know what's in it. Very <laughs> <laughs> much so. Well, I'm I'm down here with my family in South Carolina, so I get a lot of questions, and they tend to be anti Biden questions that. He basically doesn't know what he's doing. And that, that's one of the things that the, the, the folks down here, the Republicans down here anyway, feel like if it's just too expensive and the Democrats are basically throwing money at the wall. But but you're, you're in general, you're right. I think a lot of people just don't believe that uh, that members of Congress and the White House just really know what's what's in this bill or really know what they're doing right now. They're just kind of flailing. And and Nikki, I mean, we did see a, a little bit of thawing, especially after the sort of flash, uh, the the sacky flash, if you will. Um, you know that uh, um, things were getting a little bit better, you know, more on track. You know, she she was certainly more retrospect in her briefings, you know, th- throughout this week. And it seems like you know Chuck Schumer has said that they're going to bring this back up for a vote, or they're going to bring it to a vote sometime soon after they return in January. Uh, are things? What do you think things really are moving in that direction, or is that just like a oh wow we messed up we need to like play nice now? I mean, I do think that they're 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 trying to move. Also, just because it, it like publicly looks so bad, I feel like so I, I think that they are trying to you know kumbaya it up a little bit. And you saw this, you know, there there was obviously reporting out that that Biden and, and Manchin had talked Sunday night. And then Monday's press briefing, the tone was very different, very different. And then um, if you watch the Kamala Harris interview, you know, she was asked sort of repeatedly, you know, are, you know did, did you take this personally? Like, you know, how do you feel about Joe Manchin? Some of your colleagues from the Senate. And, and she was, you know, sort of very, very sort of sweetsy about him. So, you know, it, it's it, it looks like there's, you know, there's still I, I think they realize that they have to get something done at this point. Uh, whether it's going to be, you know, the original 1.8 trillion child tax credit included situation, like maybe, probably not. Uh, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, 
Uh, I, I would be remiss also if if I didn't mention that uh, before the 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 big mansion news on Sunday, uh, at the tail end of last week, uh, Kamala Harris, vice president, was on uh, you know Charlemagne the Gods uh, Comedy Central, so and asked about mansion. And I Becker, I wonder if when you were covering uh, uh, Harris as a presidential uh, candidate, I mean we see all kinds of like you know th- these these sort of interviews you know on the trail. But did you imagine a sitting vice president uh, sitting down for a Comedy Central interview with Charlemagne the God and him asking about a West Virginia senator? <laughs> I mean, I don't rule anything out anymore. I covered Trump's election, and um, <laughs> there's there have been many things that have happened over the past four or five years that I would not have predicted. So I come from a place of just waiting to see what happens at this point. Um, speaking of waiting to see what happens, uh, we are all sort of, uh, in trepidation mode with the Omicron variant here in, in Washington, where I'm coming from, uh, in this podcast, the case load has, uh, I think it's quad quadtupled 400% or something like that in the last week. Uh, it's very concerning, you know, it, it's sort of scuttled a lot of people's uh, plans or at least made them a little jittery. Uh, but the, uh, the president also seemed to, uh, note that he needed to uh, say something about that and, and make some, uh, you know, make some sort of statement and also assure people that they're going to get tests. Let's uh, we've got a little audio uh, of that uh, about his comments from the White House on Tuesday. Look, the unvaccinated are responsible for their own choices. Those choices have been fueled by dangerous misinformation on cable TV and social media. You know, these companies and personalities are making money by peddling lies and allowing misinformation that can kill their own customers and their own supporters. It's wrong. It's immoral. I call on the purveyors of these lies and misinformation to stop it. Stop it now. So, David, I mean, we're we're starting to see, you know, kind of a pattern where the president will make, you know, some statements. Uh, uh, he'll announce something that I think will definitely is designed and, and, and could be very helpful, which is that if people want to, uh, get a testing kit. They can have the government sort of ship them to them. Uh, and, and so, you know, he was going through a, a sort of a list of things to, to, uh, to, to sort of calm people's nerves and try to get, you know, things back on track with Omicron, but then get kind of gets back to these emotional appeals. Um, like let, let's talk about like, what, what do you think is the more effective thing? Like saying, we're going to get you tests if you need it. And if you need them and insurance company is going to pay for them or kind of going back to the, the well of, calling out Fox news. Yeah. Uh, I think the former, I think, uh, I think a positive message is always better. I, uh, I, I may be in the minority on this, but I think that the president and his aides have really hurt themselves by attacking the unvaccinated, if you will. And I understand that that's a big problem and that's a, the major contributor to this, the latest spread of this variant. But I just don't think it does a lot of good to just attack these people and saying that you're, you're, uh, you're being a dupe for Fox News or some charlatan or someplace that may be true in and of itself, but it's not going to help convince people to to get vaccinated. I, I think he I think he needs a more positive tone. And and Nikki, one uh, one thing that uh, I mentioned at the top of the uh, the, the podcast was that in in this speech also. Uh, the president did something he just uh, is not known for, which is say nice things about Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump, in an interview, uh, uh, noted that he had been not just vaccinated, uh, but had been boosted, which is something that uh, you know the president and and his aides have been imploring people to do. Um, and and we had this moment of of him praising you know Trump for for getting boosted. Did your did your head spin a little bit when you when you heard that? 
Well, it, it, it did, but it, it also didn't because I had actually reported on uh, this admission from Trump. He was in Dallas with Bill O'Reilly. They were doing that history tour. And Bill O'Reilly was like, hey, did you get boosted? And Trump you know, said yes. And then Trump got heckled by the audience, which sort of shows you, you know, how much sort of anti-vax sentiment exists on the right right now that they would actually heckle Donald Trump, who's sort of their, their leader. Um, and so... You know, this admission from Trump, I think it was, a, you know, obviously a positive thing for public health. And I think that, you know, Biden, you know, giving him a hat tip and giving him a hat tip for some of the, you know, early vaccine efforts, Operation Warp Speed, also, you know, sort of a positive thing. And, you know, sort of like David was saying, you know, those messages are probably better than sort of shaming the uh, the anti-vaxxers among us, you know, so. Yeah, and and. Amanda, I mean, I, I, I was sort of just sort of, I couldn't believe it almost, you know, like when you hear the boos, um, I mean, like that it sort of belies that Trump has this ironclad grip. I mean, we, there is evidence, of course, that he has consolidated a lot of loyalists, uh, among particularly the Republican party leadership, but for him to be heckled <laughs> for saying that he is trying to protect his health, uh, is a moment where it's just like, what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's just part of our new our new re- reality where things aren't consistent and sometimes don't make that much sense. Um, I'm not surprised he was he was booed for saying that or heckled, but I don't. I think that's a blip. You know, I think that the next rally he won't bring it up and it'll proceed as normal. Um, I mean, here in Ohio, just going back to what we were talking about about positive or negative messaging. I mean. If you leave a major metropolitan area, it's like the virus is over. Um, you know, people are not masked. They're out at grocery stores. I was at Costco yesterday. It was crowded. I would say maybe a third of people had masks on. I think if you haven't gotten vaccinated by now, the gloom and doom speech isn't going to work. I think for the people who are worried about it, which tend to be the people who are already vaccinated, uh, positive practical steps work. And actually, I was really struck maybe five days ago listening to Boris Johnson message this in England um, and just talking about how easy they were going to make it for everyone who wanted one to get boosters and where they'd be able to go and stuff like that. I think at this point, uh, you know, it's probably just causing people to dig in a little bit to shame them for not getting vaccinated. We're going to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Reporters Roundtable. I'm Jason Dick, sitting in for Bill, along with Amanda Becker, Nikki Schwab, and David Jackson. And we will be right back to talk about some of our favorite stories of the year that we've been working on. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong. They're the backbone of the labor industry, labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines. And in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the Labor's Union supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? 
Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we are back with Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th, Nikki Schwab, senior U.S. political reporter for the Daily Mail, and David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. I'm Jason Dick, deputy editor for CQ Roll Call. Uh, all right, this is uh, we're we're doing things a little different uh, for the the end of year review. Uh, I was uh, I'm, I'm excited to do this portion because uh, as, as opposed to kind of going through uh, you know well it started out with a bang with January six and and kind of the the normal cor- correspondence uh, that that you get for these reviews uh, we're we're going to talk about stories that we have worked on ourselves. And that we feel very strongly about, and maybe give them a little uh, extra love. So, so David, let's start with you uh, and some of the work that uh, you're particularly proud of, and, and feel is is very important uh, for for what you, for what you do as a journalist. Well, we it's, it's been a team effort, but we at USA Today, I think, have done a lot of good reporting on the continuing effort, the efforts by Donald Trump and his allies to place like-minded people in various positions in state governments, including Secretary of State's offices, election board and election administration, and in the state legislators. And there's a real concern out there that 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 they're positioning themselves to overturn the next election if things don't work out their way. They'll have a lot of allies and a lot of state governments and closely contested states. And so we could have a rerun of what we saw after the 2020 election, only this time that there's a chance they might be more successful because they'll have so many allies in state governments. Now, that's been reported a lot. I can't call that an underreported story, but I really think an underreported thing has been just the continuing effort by Trump and his minions to to question Biden's legitimacy as president, to question the election. And there's actually efforts in some states to still decertify somehow Biden's election. I mean, it's not going to happen, but it's really an extraordinary thing where we have such a large group of people uh, just questioning the legitimacy of the sitting president. I I, I can't think of a like example in American history. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of bad things. We It's already happened. We saw what happened on January 6th. And there's still a prospect for more violence out there based on just the, the bad feelings that have lingered from the 2020 election, bad feelings that have been created by Donald Trump. 
Yeah, and I think that you know one of the things that is so important about this this issue, David, is that this is. I mean, when when you get to you know statewide elections, and you know for governors and senator, and 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 even at the congressional level, you know people's um, you know a large percentage of people have a of a of an ability to weigh in and see a way a candidate's faults and and virtues and so forth. I mean, we're talking about like county level and even precinct level, you know, um, minutia. It's not things that like I sometimes don't pay very much attention to. And, and I do this for a living. You know, I mean, like I'm, I'm paid to pay attention to politics and was a political science major and, and so forth. And that's the thing that it's it's like this. This is the smallest level of gears of government uh, and and election administration, and I I I think that it is it is amazing like the the that level of sort of infiltration, if you will. Right. Yeah. Most of them aren't there to promote you know new election policy. They're they're there to help Trump if they can. All right, Nikki. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, talks about your work and 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 what you've been up to and what you're uh, particularly want to highlight. So a story that I, uh, sort of a a series of stories that I was particularly proud of this year um, dealt with the 9-11 families, uh, sort of the victims, the first responders, the survivors, and their sort of plight to get the U.S. government, Joe Biden, to release these sort of FBI documents uh, detailing potentially a Saudi link to the hijackers and the attack. And so these stories were coming out, you know, August, September you know, before the 20th anniversary of the attacks, um, I'd ask, I actually asked Jen Psaki about whether Joe Biden would release these documents at a press briefing, because obviously he had, he'd actually, you know, said that he would as a candidate. Um, and then on September 3rd, I believe it was, he did announce that there would be these uh, document drops going forward. Now, sort of the backstory of this is that uh, these families have actually sued the Saudi government uh, under the Obama administration, he didn't actually want them to have uh, the right to sue this, the Saudi government. And then Congress sort of overruled that several years later. So they're able to sort of go through and uh, with this lawsuit, but they basically need more evidence. So it's something to sort of be looking at going forward, what these documents say, um, you know, just for the sort of historical understanding of, of 9-11, I think there'll be some interesting stuff in there as we see some more of these uh, these document drops. So stay tuned. Yeah, I I, uh, I I was in the Senate chamber uh, when the Senate was voting uh, to you know to basically allow the families to sue for this, yeah. and it was just this overwhelming yeah, <laughs> it was it was this overwhelming vote uh, in in favor of of allowing this you know sort of spearheaded by Chuck Schumer who's from New York and and yeah. you know has a, a deep connection to a lot of these families, and I just my my memory of it is so it, it's so random. It's that Harry Reid came in. Uh, at, at the end, and he and he, you know, the the vote was like ninety seven to one at that or something at that point or something like that. And he came in and he just sort of emphatically voted thumbs down. And oh no! And just just you know, Reed was on his way out, and and you know, I think this was like one one more for you know Team Obama. Uh, and Reed, you know, is is of course a contrarian uh, in, by his very nature. But I just remember just cackling, sitting there with Carl Hulse, and and he just and, and Carl and I were just laughing at this, like you know, someone Reed is not a very emotional man, but he just really yeah, was he yeah. looked really pissy. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> and now right. and and now we see the uh, long tail of that. 
Uh, Amanda Becker, let's talk about your story. Yeah. Or stories. When I I was trying to decide, um, it was yesterday and uh, the news broke that uh, Biden will be pausing student loan payments longer um, through May now because of Omicron. And so I had written, I told the story of kind of the, the, the push to deal with student debt by profiling Elizabeth Warren in October and a lot of things she was doing somewhat behind the scenes with uh, some of her key allies throughout the administration um, to cancel student debt. While I was reporting that story, two major student loan servicers exited the business because she had gone after them in oversight hearings. Um, and the reason I chose this is because I, I one, just think it's a, a really interesting look at how someone operates behind the scenes in a way that we don't necessarily pay attention to. And also because I think as compared to how important student debt was in the Democratic primary, we haven't heard much about it. And we haven't heard much about it from this administration in particular. Um, Biden kind of keeps kicking the can down the road in terms of repayment resuming um, during the coronavirus pandemic. And he hasn't said how he's going to deal with a larger issue or what he's going to do. He keeps saying that he wants Congress to pass something. Obviously, that's not going to happen. And I think that he knows that. But there are a lot of people, Elizabeth Warren included, and a lot of her progressive allies within Biden's education department that think that he can do it either with executive or administrative authority. And I think that that just just kind of speaks to the larger issue of when we will see Biden start to use executive and administrative authority more to work on some of these issues like student debt that really don't have a prayer of getting through Congress. Yeah, it, it's it, to me, it, I think it's one of those things that it, it's almost like there's a generational divide among a, a lot of people in their understanding of why this is so important to such a, a big part of the Democratic coalition, which is that, I mean, let's face it, a lot of I, I count myself very fortunate that I grew up when I did uh, and went to school when I did and went to a relatively cheap state school. Um, but that is a thing of the past, <laughs> you know, even among people, um, you know, who go to state schools. I mean, it, it is it is almost unfathomable for people who are Generation X and older how expensive college is now. And and it's it to me, it, it is one of those issues that is just not going away. So thank you for your work on it. <laughs> of course. Uh, my my uh, my own story um, that I'm sort of proud of. I. I, um, as most of you know, I'm an editor, but I also have this like real, uh, I, I, I dabble in podcasting myself, uh, for the, I'm the host of our political theater podcast at Roll Call. Uh, and I also have an intense interest in film, uh, which, uh, Bill notes a, a lot when I'm on a, on one of these, uh, uh, round tables myself. Um, and I have just, I, I feel like we are in sort of a golden age of documentary film right now. I mean, I've, I've just this year, I've had a really, you know, great set of opportunities. I've interviewed people like Errol Morris uh, and um, uh, Julie Cohen and Betsy West, who did the RBG documentary and, and have two documentaries this year, one called My Name is Polly Murray uh, and one uh, about uh, Julia Child. But in particular, two um, two filmmakers I interviewed, uh, and this gets back to the 9-11 issue, Nikki, um, the, the, the sort of the long uh, effect of, of 9-11. Two, two filmmakers I, I interviewed, I, I was just really struck by their projects. One was 
uh, a guy named Greg Barker, who uh, has, has been a longtime documentary filmmaker, and he his his film uh, uh, Detainee 001 was about John Walker Lind, uh, the American Taliban, if you will, uh, and and his story, uh, and and then. Alex Gibney, uh, who is also a very prolific uh, uh, documentary filmmaker, uh, had a, a movie ab- about uh, Abu Zubayah, uh, who's the the forever prisoner, which is the the title of his documentary. And both of these films, I felt, were bringing attention to what we're still coming to grips with what we did uh, in in the reaction to nine eleven and 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 how scary it was you know, in the days after 9-11 and the decisions that we made that have put us on this path. And also the fact that, in, I mean, in Lynn's case, he's out of prison uh, and, and is kind of, uh, it, it kind of whereabouts unknown. But Abu Zubayah is still in Guantanamo Bay. Um, he's never been charged <laughs> with a crime. Uh, and the thing that struck me in my interview with Gibney was that Gibney said, you know, Zubayah is, is not in in prison because of things he did to us, he's in prison for things we did to him uh, because he was one of the first people who was subjected to the enhanced interrogation techniques by the, by the CIA, which they knew at the time, even in this, this documentary bears it out that they didn't work against a lot of this is not new. Um, you know, that, that, you know, everybody who follows nine 11 knows about people like Lind and Abizuea, but it's, to me, it shows that like 20 years after the fact, we're still grappling uh, with the war on terror. We left Afghanistan in a very chaotic manner earlier this year. Uh, we are going to probably be dealing with this for a long time. This was never going to be a tidy thing, but it just gets more untidy. And for me, I I just thought, wow, I mean, this is just something we're going to grapple with for a long time. So I was I was very pleased I got to, to work on those those stories. Um, all right. Well, we are going to uh, wrap up the year in review uh, with the the week's favorite stories. Uh, we're asking a lot of our panelists, uh, we're a lot of reading, a lot of uh, contemplation. Uh, but I, this is always my favorite part of the uh, the roundtable is talking about the story that stuck out to you this week. Uh, and, and you can go in a lot of different directions. So David, let's start with you on that one. Um. Not a particularly happy story, but the Omicron story, I think, I, I, I'm just struck by the panic that uh, seems to have set in because of this latest variant, despite the fact that all the evidence suggests that it's not as dangerous as, as uh, previous versions of this, of, of, of this virus. And also, it's a sign that the pandemic is actually going away because uh, this latest wave is much weaker than previous ones. I know it's very contagious, and a lot of people have gotten it, and we're starting to see more cancellation of uh, of events and people worried about getting together with their families, but there doesn't appear to be that much danger, but there's a lot of panic in the air. And I'm just, I'm just struck by that. It's not a particularly happy story, but it seems to be a fitting ending to 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Nikki, how about you? Um, Because, you know, things are feeling a little dire. I have this sort of story. It's from a couple weeks ago, actually about a uh, real housewife of New York uh, dining and dashing at La Diplomat in DC. Uh, so this was reported by New York Magazine. Uh, I'm not sure how much you guys watch Bravo reality TV shows, but Countess Luann de Lesseps was in town because she was doing her Christmas cabaret show and went to Le Diplomat. And those who are uh, not from D.C., Le Dip is like the CNBC restaurant right now on 14th Street. Joe Biden has been, Kamala Harris has been, Pete and Chaston were there over the weekend. So it, it's become quite the place. 
Uh, and she and her crew basically amounted to about $500 worth of damage, a seafood tower, uh, lots of gray goose. And they stepped outside for a cigarette and just left. Uh, and it was a, you know, a big to-do in D.C. Uh, and New York Magazine basically called up her publicist to be like, you know, she's obviously his money. Why did she, you know, dash out on the bill? And apparently there was some, quote, miscommunication and uh, she gave the Daily Mail a statement, actually, and she said and apologized and said, all I wanted for Christmas was a seafood tower. So definitely check out that story. It brought me a lot of joy this holiday season. <laughs> That's, that is Maybe awesome. you heard about the shooting there earlier this year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Amanda, your favorite story of the week. Well, I, too, went with one that brought me joy, though of a different, cornier sort. Um, the story is by my colleague, Kate. So no seafood is what you're saying. (laughs) No (laughs) No, no tower of seafood. Um, my colleague, Kate, our LGBTQ reporter wrote this really lovely story that published yesterday that the lead made me cry. And it was about a young trans man named Grayson Thate. And, uh, he received a package from his mother in the mail recently And it was she had gone through all of the Christmas ornaments he had made as a child and found the exact paint color to paint over the female name he was assigned at birth with the name that he goes by now after his transition, Grayson. And so I just thought that was like such a beautiful thing to do that probably didn't take that much effort that just brought him so much joy. And I loved reading it. Awesome. My uh, my favorite story of the week uh, is not a movie one, um, so Bill will be proud uh, <laughs> that I've I've got, got gone to another one of my passions, which is food. Um, there was this story, uh, a, a, a sort of an, an essay, if you will, in the Washington Post Outlook section uh, about truffles, and and uh, I had them kind of on the brain because. They're incredibly expensive right now. Um, I mean, most of the truffles that we consume uh, in the United States come from Europe. uh, And one of the reasons the truffles are more expensive even than they normally are is because of climate change. Uh, The truffles need uh, a cooler environment and a lot of rain to to thrive. And that is not happening in the Mediterranean, uh, at least this year. Uh, But this guy, uh, Rowan Jacobson, was writing about how American truffles are actually quite delicious uh, and they're quite plentiful. Too everywhere from you know some uh, uh, second and third growth forests in West Virginia to the Pacific Northwest and Oregon, um, and it was uh, it was just this really kind of cool look at you know the, the fact that you know this stuff is cheaper, it's very good, it takes it tastes great. Uh, you mentioned a chef here in D.C., Frank Ruda, who, who frequently uses truffles in his menu and and, and domestic truffles, and the problem is. Uh, is not one of of access. It is the fact that there are not enough trained dogs uh, to get these truffles uh, and to to find the truffles. Uh, you know, the the image of the truffle hunting pig is one that's a little uh, outdated because pigs are are sort of impractical uh, with with truffles. But it's just this very cool story about like w- how truffles are integral to ecosystems, uh, what what their purpose is, how they're spread, and also the fact that they're quite delicious, which I can a- attest to. So that was that was my uh, fun. Uh, fun story of of the week. Jason, uh, can I just say, I was at dinner with my parents last night and we had shaved truffles on burrata 
and I was explaining truffles and I said, I can't, I said, maybe when I get my land in West Virginia, cause you can inoculate <laughs> trees to grow truffles. Uh-huh. And I said, I'll inoculate my trees, get a pet pig and have truffle tourism. So if you want in, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> I will definitely get back to you on that, Amanda. <laughs> uh, all right. That's going to do it for this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our panelists for their time and their insight and the work that they do. Uh, Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th, Nikki Schwab, senior U.S. political reporter for the Daily Mail, and David Jackson, national political correspondent for USA Today. Thank you very much, all of you, this morning. I'm Jason Dick, deputy editor at CQ Roll Call, your guest host. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy New Year. Stay safe and stay warm.